It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. More information at 7thAvenueProject.com. And hello, everyone. It's the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today, the new cosmology. Just when we were getting used to the modern picture of the universe, you know, it began with the Big Bang almost 14 billion years ago. Well, now physicists have had to go and complicate things. Now they're saying, at least some of them are, that what we used to think of as our entire universe, well, that may just be a small part of a much bigger, possibly older, and far weirder totality. How big? How old? We got no clue. In fact, beyond our little corner of this, whatchamacallit, this megaverse or multiverse, a lot of the physics we're familiar with may not even apply. There might, in fact, be multiple universes out there, with new ones popping up all the time, each with their own rules. It is beginning to sound like a real mess. But before we get mad at the physicists, let it be said that they didn't really want to muddy up the simpler model of the Big Bang universe that they'd been working on for all these years, no, the crazy stuff was just the unavoidable implication of that earlier model, which is to say, logic made them do it. Physicists, in some sense, have been dragged along kicking and screaming to have to think about these different bubbles with different laws of physics that might run into each other and so on. That's Anthony Aguirre, associate professor of physics at UC Santa Cruz and a cosmologist by trade. I, I study the current nature of the universe and how it evolved from some early state using physics. Not a cosmetologist. <laughs> and it's a good thing he's not a cosmetologist because the new universe that he and others are beginning to sketch out, well, it's got, shall we say, some complexion problems. The possibilities include a severe case of eternal inflation, the occasional eruption of baby universes, some space-time wormholes, all of which I know sounds unsightly and maybe even insane. But Anthony Aguirre says it's not. Not totally. Well, I'll let you be the judge. I have to apologize, along with welcoming you to the show, because what I'm going to do with you today, without even preparing you, is to throw a lot of questions at you that I've accumulated over time, talking to physicists uh, about the formation of the universe, about the geometry of the universe, and about a lot of other things that have um, given me an endless headache contemplating. I'm hoping you can cure me. Well, I can't guarantee that I'm not going to give you an even bigger headache, um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm certainly more than happy to give it a shot and, and see what questions you have. I'll let you know how I'm feeling at the end of the interview. Well, let's start with, with the Big Bang and its timeline. Now, as I understand it, Physicists feel pretty confident about uh, describing events that occurred within a very tiny fraction of a second after that first moment, whatever that first moment was. I mean, we're talking trillions of trillions of trillions of a second afterwards, and that's where the narrative usually starts. Yes. One thing that you said that made me very happy was that you didn't mention the Big Bang at that first moment, because one thing that I like to make sure are disentangled are the idea of the Big Bang cosmology and a sort of first moment of time, a, a time zero when, when everything supposedly came into being. So what we know, the thing that we, we have really good confidence about as cosmologists is what happened over the past 13.7 billion years between now and this very early time where we knew that the universe was an ultra-hot, ultra-dense, fairly uniform, expanding medium of stuff. The Big Bang theory is the idea that the universe did start out in that super dense, super hot state and expanded and cooled and formed structure like galaxies and planets and us ever since. So we have very good evidence for that. What we have less evidence for and what becomes much trickier is what happened before this very early time when the temperature was, say, a billion degrees in the universe. So that's super hot, but it is still a regime where we as physicists really know what we're doing. That's nuclear physics. We understand nuclear physics. We can see what would be happening at that sort of temperature. Once you go earlier and earlier, though, we get to a energy and, and a sort of set of physics that we really don't understand and, and we really have to sort of speculate about. 
And, and that, that moment, though, that we can extrapolate back to and that physicists talk about with a certain amount of confidence, that moment is only this microfraction of a second after moment zero. It could be a microsecond after, or it could be an infinite amount of time. That's, oh. that's how much uncertainty there is. Uh-huh. And, 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 and so that, that is where the story gets more interesting. Okay. So in, in a lot of the at least popular physics books, they have this neat little timeline they lay out, and they really start the story. There's a moment zero, and they start the story typically um, oh, 10 to the minus 35th of a second, trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second or something like that mm-hmm. after this moment. And then they start telling things in detail. You're not in agreement that we necessarily know that interval between zero and and the next stage. Exactly. And the reason is that something happened along the way, which was the invention of so-called inflation as a theory that of what happens in the very early universe. And the early understanding of the Big Bang is just as you've described, that there was a bang, there was this singularity where everything came from nothing or, or something that, that can't really be described. And then a tiny fraction of a second after that, the universe cooled down enough so that things like quarks and leptons could have formed. These are the constituents of atoms, the, the smallest constituents. And then later on, the universe just kept going and cooling. And this provided a, a basic picture and a basic timeline. And what inflation does is really turn that timeline sort of upside down. Okay, so we won't talk about some moment zero that is the hypothetical beginning of everything, when and if it ever happened. But we can talk instead about things when they were very small, very hot, and about to give rise to the universe that we live in today through expansion processes and through cooling. Um, And before we do that, though, I want to ask you about a a term you just uh, mentioned. It's one we often hear in conversations about the Big Bang, and it's singularity. Mm Mm-hmm. I think uh, a common understanding of that one that I've carried around for a while is is that it's this infinitely small speck. The entire universe was crammed into this maybe as small as a, a point, meaning it had no dimensions at all. And that's what then blew up into the universe. So the theory that we use to talk about the universe as a whole, and the only reason we can talk about the universe as a whole is because we have this theory, is Einstein's theory of general relativity. And what Einstein postulated is that gravity is caused by the structure of space-time, the curvature of space-time. And it's a relationship between how curved space-time is and how much stuff there is in a given amount of space, the density of stuff. Stuff meaning matter or energy. Matter or radiation and any sort of energy, really. So as we go back in time, we can imagine the universe denser and denser. Um, Or if we were, say, in a black hole, we could imagine a higher and higher density of stuff. That means greater and greater curvature. And you can have a situation in which the density of stuff essentially goes infinite. The curvature goes infinite. And then all the quantities that we talk about, regular physics of matter or the Einstein's physics of gravity, everything either goes to zero or infinity mathematically. And so you simply don't know how to calculate anything or how to talk about anything clearly. And that's what we mean by a singularity. But what it doesn't have is any implication that the singular region is small. It might be, but it also might be quite large in some sense or, or even infinite in, the, in a cosmological context. Okay, so again, um, the pictures of the Big Bang that show this tiny thing becoming big, and they, it becomes very big very fast because of that other thing you mentioned a moment ago, inflation. Right. And then it gradually gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's still getting bigger. But you're saying it could have been infinitely big to begin with. It could have been, yeah. And and more infinitely big now than then. <laughs> in insofar as you can talk about more infinitely big than than I suppose so. But Well the, can you? I mean, if it was infinitely big to begin with, does it make sense to say it's bigger now? Is there a bigger infinity? Not in, in mathematically it it I would say that it doesn't make sense to say that the universe is bigger than it was if it's infinite in both times. But what you can nonetheless say is that the universe expanded because you can take some small region of the universe early on. It would be an, you know, almost zero. It would be a zero fraction of the whole universe, which is infinite. But you could take that little region and see what happens to it. And what you'll see is that that region expands and becomes less dense. And it expands precisely in the sense that the actual 
distance between little bits of it becomes bigger. Mm -hmm. So you can measure that distance in, in, in any way you might measure things and find that the distance between the, the bits that make up that part of the universe gets bigger. So it expands in just the way you might imagine. But I think mathematically it's, you know, it, at one time it, it's volume equals infinity. At a later time it's volume equals infinity. Did it get bigger? It, it's, it's not really clear that you can say that. <laughs> All right, Anthony. Um, you were right when you said you might give me some new headaches. <laughs> I warned you. <laughs> I just heard you say that any given patch of space-time has expanded, and that fits our model of the expanding universe, but that the overall extent of the universe might have been infinite to begin with, and that the overall extent, it's hard to talk about that getting bigger. So how do you reconcile those two statements? Well, it's... It simply that something that starts out infinitely can double in size and still be infinite. So, so for example, the, there's an old way of thinking about infinity and, and its puzzles that goes back to mathematician Hilbert. And he said, imagine that you've got a, a hotel room. Oh, I know this one. A, a hotel <laughs> that's got infinitely many rooms. And, and they're numbered one through infinity. And now you say, okay, well, I've got some guests that would like to stay at the hotel, but they can't because all the rooms are full. All these rooms are full. But this is no problem because you can take the guest that's in room number two and move them to room number three and the guest that's in room number four and move them to room number five. In other words, you can take every even number room and move them over to an odd number room. So what have you done? In some sense, you've made the hotel bigger. You've made gaps in the in the list of rooms where people can can now stay. But the hotel is the same hotel as you had before. It's just that once you have something that's infinitely big, you can fit as many more things into it as you like without expanding the thing at all. So infinite things are very, very difficult for our intuition to work with. Um, mathematicians it's, seem to have less of a trouble with it, but um, even they, I think, get rather confused and, you know, on occasion go insane. <laughs> mm. So so could we just uh, leave it that the universe may have been infinite to begin with, it would still be infinite now, and it would be bigger now than then, somehow. Somehow. It, it has <laughs> expanded. I think that's... It has expanded. What, what I think is even more interesting is the possibility that the universe could have started out finite, but now be infinite. Mm. If you want a headache. You know, well, that was one of my questions for you. And maybe we should just uh, jump to that. We'll get back to inflation in a minute. But how could it have started out finite and gotten infinite? Well, inflation is actually the key to that. Okay. So, so maybe we should talk a little bit about inflation Okay, let's first. back up to, to inflation is this event that occurred about 13.7 billion years ago. And it basically caused the universe to blow up many times over by a factor of, of what? Well, essentially, to explain the subsequent evolution of the universe, inflation had to have doubled the size of the universe around 100 times. So if you imagine folding a dollar bill in half, you, you know, you can't do it more than eight or so times because it starts to get thick really quickly. If you start doubling something 100 times over, you can, you can see that the numbers soon become astronomical in, in sort of a literal sense. <laughs> and all this happened in, in a fraction of a second. That's right. That set of doublings that inflation had to have done would have only taken a tiny fraction of a second. So what causes this, you know, incredibly rapid, massive, you know, inflation of the universe? Well, there has to be some sort of anti-gravity force. There has to be something that's pushing space apart. And you can go to Einstein's equations and say, well, what, what would do this? It, rather than attracting things together as normal stuff does, what sort of substance, if you will, would cause space to be pushed apart. And Einstein's equations have an answer to that. It was, in fact, one that was invented by Einstein himself for a different purpose, which was that if empty space had some sort of energy associated with it, then this is exactly the effect it would have. If just nothingness, if you took away all the stuff, all the protons and electrons and the stuff that we know about, but still there was some amount of energy per unit volume that was there, then it would have a particular property, which is if you take a, a some empty space, it has some amount of energy, and then if you double it in size, normally the amount of energy per amount of space would go down. More space, the same amount of energy. Mm -hmm. But if the energy is the energy of empty space, then by doubling the amount of space, you've doubled the amount of energy. 
So it's a strange thing where you're creating you're you're creating energy in some sense um, just by creating more space. And it turns out when you plug that into Einstein's equation that it will cause this expansion, that it will basically make space blow up and in doing so create all this space and all this energy. Mm. So if you think about it, uh, this is as, as it was named by Alan Guth, the main inventor of inflation, this is sort of the ultimate free lunch. You start this process and it just keeps creating more and more volume and more and more energy that's in that volume. And if inflation then ends and can convert that energy into more familiar stuff, you create in a huge amount of stuff out of essentially this tiny little beginning. It's it's the ultimate free lunch. Alan Guth, um, who I guess at the time when he came up with this idea of inflation, uh, it was 1979, was at uh, the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center, SLAC. He's now at MIT. That's right. Yeah. So where'd this energy come from and, and how does it make space-time, you know, inflate like this? So the idea that empty space has energy to it is a strange one. It's not a strange one for particle physicists, the people who actually study the fields and particles that make up the sort of fundamental basis of the physical world. There's nothing particularly strange about this vacuum energy because our description of how things come into being is fields, that there's just like the electric field and, and a magnetic field, there are other fields, and these fields permeate space and they essentially create and destroy the particles that make up all the stuff that we see. But these fields also can carry energy so that even when no particles are around, you can have energy that's in a field, even if it doesn't look like there are any particles. And the vacuum energy is a specific type of this. It it can be imagined as a field that just fills up space. It doesn't really have particles associated with it, but it does have energy. And so it's, this is a, a way of thinking about the vacuum energy is just this kind of substance that's there, mm. but that doesn't dilute. Mm-hmm. So what exactly that field is, nobody knows. So an uncomfortable fact about inflation is that we don't actually know what the field is that makes the universe inflate. We just have to guess that there is such a field that took over in the early universe. Now, this would be a strange thing um, and and leads to some skepticism about inflation, although we do have some evidence that there is actually vacuum energy out in the universe now. Mm, mm. Um, The field is hypothetical. Uh, I think you guys have a nice name for it, inflaton or something like that? Inflaton field. Inflaton field. Cool. So at least it has a name, even if it we don't know anything else it's about it. It's the first step. <laughs> but, but my sense of it was that the, the early universe uh, uh, on the precipice of inflation was like a coiled spring. And inflation is like, boing, this thing just explodes outward. There was this energy, and this energy suddenly started expressing itself in this massive expansion. Is that, is that a good way to think about it? The only concern I might have is that a coiled spring has a certain amount of energy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It uncoils, and as it uses that energy and mm-hmm. turns it into other forms, mm-hmm. it uses it up. What's different about inflation is that once you get inflation started, it doesn't really use up anything. It keeps generating more and more space. And the more the longer inflation goes on, the more space it generates. But there's no price that you have to pay. Mm-hmm. So the spring keeps unspringing. Um, and yet this inflationary process lasted only a short time, right? Well, maybe not. Oh. (laughs) But the traditional depiction is that it was over in far less than the blink of an eye. The the required amount of inflation, Uh in other words, the amount that you must postulate in order that at the end of inflation, the universe looks like we want it to look for our theories. Yeah, yeah. Is a a very short amount of time. Less than a second. Right. Boom. Universe is many times bigger, and then it starts following the processes that we're more familiar with. Exactly. Cooling down forming galaxies and planets, getting gradually bigger. That's right. So so inflation, at a minimum, takes the universe, and, and this is sort of the classic view of inflation, takes the universe from about a billionth of the size of a proton. So the universe was very small at that time. Um, and but, in, by universe, but, but infinite? <laughs> what I mean by universe, let, let me explain. What I mean by universe is the region that is going to expand into our observable universe. Uh-huh. So there's a certain amount of the universe that we can see, mm-hmm. for sure, even if it's infinite. And we can trace that region back in time and ask at a given time, how big was that, the observable Mm. universe? So the observable universe at the beginning of inflation could have been, say, a billionth of the size of a proton. 
and inflation grew it up to about the size of a grapefruit. Um, and then inflation in the this simple picture of inflation ended and the regular expansion and Big Bang cosmology ensued after that. Aha, uh -huh. much larger than a grapefruit now. Fairly large, <laughs> yes. The visible universe. Okay, this makes things a little simpler. We're going to get to this concept of visible versus the the to universe in its totality in, in a mm. moment. But let's just talk about the visible universe. Today, the size of it is how big? It's It depends a little bit on how you define it, uh -huh. but it, it is something like 40 billion light years. Okay, across. Across. 40 billion light years across. It's managed to get that big over 13.7 billion years from the right. size of a grapefruit. Right. Uh, but inflation, I mean, proportionally, inflation was a much greater expansion than that, right, from the size of smaller than a proton, you said, to a, a grapefruit? Interestingly, it's, a, it's about the same, from, from the billionth of a proton up to a grapefruit, and then from a grapefruit up to everything that we can see, the, the observable universe, uh, tens of billions of light years across, um, are not that different in terms of the expansion factor. Mm. What is very different is the time scale. Right. Tiny fraction of a second versus eons. Eons, yeah. So um, let's quickly see if we can make a little more sense of this. The inflaton field that hypothetically drove that earlier inflation and that sort of ran out of steam, you said it was essentially, you know, quoting Alan Guth, the father of inflation, um, that it was a free lunch. Uh, and you said as space got bigger and bigger during inflation, it, the en energy didn't dissipate. Why, why did it run out of gas? So even though the expanding space does not dilute this vacuum energy, nonetheless, the vacuum energy can have dynamics. That is, it can vary in space or in time. And the description of this in physics is by a field, the inflaton field. Mm -hmm. And that has a certain set of laws of physics that govern it. So during inflation, this field can have some high value at which the vacuum energy is high, and the expansion doesn't change that. But the field itself can evolve in such a way that the vacuum energy steadily declines as inflation goes on until it gets to be tiny, and then inflation essentially ends. Mm -hmm. And that vacuum energy transfers energy into regular stuff like light and eventually matter like atoms and protons and quarks and so on. So there's a there's a process where inflation starts out with a sort of timeline. It's going to go on for a certain amount of time, depending on how high the vacuum energy was at the beginning. But then the clock runs out and inflation ends. So free lunch, but not an infinite buffet. In that case. Okay. <laughs> but even w what people realized actually pretty soon after this basic idea of inflation was devised was that it might not be so simple. Because suppose you start out with a region that has a certain high vacuum energy and its natural course should be for that vacuum energy to go lower and lower and lower and then inflation ends. But it may not always go perfectly smoothly like that. In physics, we have quantum mechanics and quantum mechanics introduces uncertainty and fluctuations in things. So you can ask, um, what are the jitters, the quantum fluctuations in this inflationary process? And it turns out that there are some, and that while the propensity of, of the inflaton is to go towards lower and lower vacuum energy, nonetheless, sometimes quantum mechanics will tell you that the energy will jump up. Mm -hmm. And normally, these quantum fluctuations aren't such a big deal. But inflation, they're key, because if in some region the inflaton jumps up a little bit, in that region of the universe, inflation will go on a little bit longer than in some other region of the universe <laughs> where there wasn't that jump. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, those variations in how long inflation lasted actually mean that at the, at the end of inflation, the universe won't be totally uniform. It'll have little non-uniformities. And those are incredibly important, actually, because those are just the non-uniformities that grow into the non-uniform universe we see, in, filled with patterns of galaxies and all kinds of structures. They're the very same non-uniformities also that we observe when we go and look at these pictures of the very early universe in the microwave band that we could talk more about. Mm -hmm. So we see inhomogeneities um, both in the structure of the universe and in pictures of the, of the baby universe, and inflation can provide those because of these quantum jitters. Mm -hmm. The really interesting thing, though, is 
what happens with those quantum jitters if you analyze them a little bit more carefully, because there might be some region where the, the universe jitters upward a little bit, so inflation goes on a little bit longer. And that region of the universe creates some more regions. That's what inflation does. And most of those will then decline to lower values, but some of those might also jitter upward. And so what happens is that although most regions of the universe stop inflating after a while, there are nonetheless some that keep going. And because inflation keeps blowing those into bigger and bigger volumes, the process can just go on forever. Okay, now you're talking about something called eternal inflation. That's right. Yeah. And uh, just to make sure people are clear on what we're talking about when you use certain terms, inflaton is the name of this field that drives inflation, that has driven the expansion of the early universe, and that if these quantum jitters that you're describing occasionally push the energy of that inflaton, that field, up a little bit, a new bubble will form inside the big bubble that is the universe. Is that right? A certain area of space starts expanding? One way to look at it is... is of a, a sort of bubbling process. Mm -hmm. um, another way is to, to just say that the universe is non-uniform and that some regions have higher inflaton values than others. And that if you ask the question, what is the total volume of the universe that is inflating? The answer is that that total volume will still exponentially increase, even though if you just sit at one place in the universe, inflation will eventually end. So the inflating universe just keeps going on and on and on, and only locally in some region inflation stops and creates matter and energy and so on. And we say, ah, there's the Big Bang universe. But elsewhere out there, inflation is still going on and creating other regions with their own radiation and energy and so on that might be just like this one or might be somewhat different. Are these totally separate universes or are they totally separate um regions within our universe? I would say that they're different regions within our universe. So if we were to look out someday with a really good telescope, might we see another region expanding faster and looking really different? Yes and no. So the, the no is that in this inflating process, one of the interesting things that happens is the her formation of what's called a horizon. So when we look out we can only see a certain distance on the surface of the Earth. We call it the horizon because light just can't get to us from beyond that point. The curvature of the Earth means that it can't get to us. What happens in an inflating universe is that if you pick two things that are far enough apart and one of them shines light towards the other, then the space in between those two things expands so fast that the light can't actually make any progress towards the other object. And since Einstein's theory also tells us that nothing can beat light in a, in a foot race, then it basically means that nothing can get from one of those objects to the other if they are far enough apart and if the universe mm -hmm. is inflating. Yes. In, uh, the, the expansion of space that is going on even now and was certainly going on really fast in the early universe can actually be faster than the speed of light. I mean, it's not violating anything Einstein said for space itself to stretch out faster than the speed of light because it's not an object. It's not a thing, you know? That's right. That right. What what Einstein's theory tells you can't happen is you can't have something that locally can can beat light. So you can't have two places and something gets from one place to the other faster than light mm -hmm, does or something mm -hmm. like that. What it doesn't tell you is that you can't have some sort of distance and that distance between things increases with time faster than light travels a certain distance in a certain amount of time. Okay, so those so, are two quite different things. So is that our definition of the horizon, the cosmic horizon? If we look out from the Earth, the theoretical maximum distance we can look is that threshold beyond which space is stretching faster than light can get to us. That's right. So, so the horizon is the maximum distance from which we can receive any signals at a given time in the universe. Even if we had the ultimate telescope. I mean, the best that could be invented. That's right, because there simply isn't anything for it to observe that has gotten here. Uh-huh. Now, I want to get back to this idea of eternal inflation. Again, the classic idea of inflation that I and others have read about is that it happened in a split second at the beginning of the universe. It ended. The universe continued to expand, but for somewhat different reasons at different rates. It was no longer inflating like a balloon being blown up in a split second. 
Yeah. But you said there might be this thing called eternal inflation, where even to this day, bits of the universe start inflating, you know, just like the early universe. Did. More that they continue inflating. Uh -huh. So the idea is really that once this inflation process starts, it can become sort of like a genie that's let out of the bottle and just take over everything. The inflation process can just keep going and going and going and really provide the sort of backdrop, the, the overall structure of the universe. Within this inflating sea that just continues on forever, there are occasional little pockets where inflation stops and gives rise to an evolution that looks like our observable universe. Ah. So what we get to see is the region, some region where inflation has stopped. But outside, far away, inflation would still be going on eternally into the future. I get it. I get it. But we wouldn't see that because it's happening outside of our horizon. Outside of our past light cone, or but horizon is similar. Okay. Okay. And in some cases, it, it would be happening beyond that permanent horizon you just talked about. That's right. Where light could never reach us no matter how long we waited. That's right. <laughs> but um, so we, we, we can't observe those areas where inflation hasn't stopped, but we can imagine that it that it's going on. We can imagine them and we we might come close in the sense that we might observe some sort of relic or fossil evidence of those other regions. Mm. So there are two essential types of eternal inflation. And I've talked about one where there's kind of these quantum jitters. But there's another type where the picture looks more like this, that there is an, the same sort of inflating background. It just keeps going and going, doubling in size. And every once in a while, a bubble forms in which the universe is not inflating. And there's a well-described physical process of this bubble formation and growth and so on. But the important thing is that essentially these spherical bubbles form and then they grow bigger and bigger. And we would be inside one of these bubbles. But an interesting thing is that if you imagine forming a bunch of bubbles and those bubbles growing, you can easily imagine that those bubbles could run into each other, and they do. So one thing you can ask is, if we lived in one of these bubbles, could there be some relic evidence that our bubble had run into other bubbles early on? And these collisions would essentially be things that, that happened, from our point of view, sort of at the beginning of the universe. Hmm. What would happen if two bubbles ran into each other? Two regions of space-time that were inflating and... And then... Yes. Yeah, what, what happens? Different things can happen. Some of them uh, good news, some of them bad news. So <laughs> <laughs> essentially what happens is that if the the bubbles might, if they are exactly the same type of bubble, they might just merge into one bigger bubble. And you could imagine that that might leave some... Uh, remnants where there, there was a merger process that we might look for. That's in some sense the least fun possibility. More fun is if the bubbles are different types. If the, the fields driving inflation take different values or other fields take different values, then there will be a sort of wall that divides these two bubbles from each other. And this wall is a barrier that separates one set of attributes from another set. But it's also a, a thing that sort of moves and goes, moves one direction or the other. And when the two bubbles run into each other and form this wall in between them, that wall essentially will move into one of the bubbles or the other. So, so it'll be sort of a battle where one bubble essentially takes over the other one or vice versa, depending it, on which way this wall goes. Is that wall, is that some kind of geometric boundary between two different sort of shapes of space-time, or is that wall a whole set of physical laws that are based on these inflation rates that have to somehow reconcile things and work out a, a truce? What is it exactly? It, it's essentially, so it could be as simple as just different values of this inflationary field, but it could mm -hmm. be much more interesting if there are other fields that determine what we would call the the laws of physics that we experience on a day-to-day -day mm -hmm, level. Mm -hmm. And, and the reason that this is not totally insane to be thinking about is when people have tried to develop theories of unifying the forces, um, say unifying the electric force and the weak force or the strong force, they, they've done so and that unification happens at a high energy. So at high energies, what seems like one force, at low energies seems like several different forces. But you can imagine that that high energy single force might 
separate into different forces at lower energies in different ways. So in our universe, we have electromagnetism and the weak force and the strong force. But it might be that in some other bubble, there's something like electromagnetism, but no weak force. The weak force could just be gone. And electromagnetism could be a thousand times stronger than in our region. And this wall in between would be a region where there was unification. So, so the two sets of forces were unified in this wall. Where the wall goes, in some sense, defines which set of laws prevail over the other ones, where this wall accelerates into one bubble or the other. You know, Anthony, you said that so calmly and so logically that I trust your sanity. But if you just raise your <laughs> decibel level a little bit and, and just use slightly more animated language, I would say you're insane. <laughs> In any case, I will, I will call this show, uh, to borrow the phrase you just uttered, not totally insane. Not totally insane. <laughs> when, did you start, when did you start thinking seriously about questions like this? I remember in graduate school, I, I was studying cosmology and the Big Bang, and I heard about this thing, inflation, and I hated it. I thought it seemed like a, a, some crazy way to fix up the, the Big Bang theory that had these problems, and there was a bunch of postulates that we didn't have any evidence for, and then this, there was this eternal inflation, which sounded totally insane. But throughout my career, I've discovered that the best way to predict whether I'll be working on something in a few years is whether I hate it now. And that's certainly what unfolded. So the more I studied inflation, the more I found that, in fact, although it's speculative, it's a, a postulate that we have to make, it explains a tremendous number of different things about the actual observed universe that can't be easily otherwise explained. Mm -hmm. And it makes predictions for and it has made predictions for things that haven't been observed which were then observed so this is just basic textbook science you know that it makes predictions it explains it's got the whole thing and there aren't really any other theories that do anywhere near as good of a job of doing this so this made me think that inflation makes sense and and a lot of cosmologists that inflation makes sense so that it becomes sort of a part of the standard model of cosmology that the vast majority of cosmologists accept. And inflation almost automatically gives you this eternal inflation as a side effect. It's this, this idea of multiple bubbles and different universes and so on um, is not something that physicists have invented because we like thinking about extravagant speculative things. Maybe some people do, but I'm not one of those people. What's interesting about it to me is that it is something that fell out as a side effect of things that we believe for completely different reasons. And physicists have some sense have been dragged along kicking and screaming to have to think about these different bubbles with different laws of physics that might run into each other and so on. So it's exciting and mind bending and, and speculative, but it's not just made up. Mm. It's something that we were led to. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, one of the points at which a really attractive problem solving theory crosses over into becoming really persuasive is when it makes a prediction and you see it out there in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, when Einstein came up with general relativity, it was pretty cool, pretty daunting, but it was when astronomical observations were made that no other theory predicted and they matched his theory that everyone just went, whoa, you know? Right. So what has inflation predicted that we've actually seen? The, the key thing, I would say, so there, there are the explanations that it's made of how the universe started out uniform and so on. Mm -hmm. But at a more quantitative level, the, the, a lot of what we know about cosmology and about the early universe comes from the so-called cosmic microwave background radiation. And the idea of this is that it is radiation that comes from, to us from a time when the universe was a, a few thousand degrees and it was opaque. So light was just moving very short distances before interacting with ionized atoms and electrons. And suddenly the universe, sudden in cosmic terms, the universe became diffuse enough that that light could travel directly to us. Now, as the universe expands, it stretches out light. We get this cosmological so-called redshift. And that light that was infrared and optical light has been stretched out into the microwave. But the which, beautiful, is a, which is a, a, a longer wavelength form of electromagnetic radiation. Exactly. And it's, it's the sort of thing that's in your microwave oven. It's got a wavelength about, of about a millimeter. Mm -hmm. 
The great thing about this microwave radiation is that it's traveled pretty much unimpeded to us from this early time, a couple hundred thousand years after inflation ended, if it did. Um, so it gives us this beautiful baby picture of what the universe looked like when it was almost perfectly uniform, but not quite. Nothing, no growth of structure that we've seen now has happened. And it's this very precise, quantifiable map of what the universe looked like. And what inflation provides is a prediction as to what those fluctuations in the universe should look like. So it makes very specific predictions about this non-uniformity, which are beautifully matched by the actual data that we've gotten from satellites mm. observing this radiation. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and just to add a little bit to that picture you gave us, um, this, the early universe was this kind of soup of loose particles and ionized atoms, this kind of thick, opaque medium. Light couldn't travel through it, right? That's right. And then it cooled to the point where things started to condense into actual atoms and even maybe some molecules. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's when light could travel. That's right. And that's when the cosmic background radiation, what we call it today, sort of um, sprang forth. And it's been floating around, traveling around the universe ever since then, billions of years ago. And we look at it, and it seems to match the patterns that maybe inflation would have predicted. That's right. And, and down to... Inflation makes some general predictions which come true, and then some more specific ones. Um, and those are currently being sought after in microwave background experiments. There's one satellite that's been up for a, about eight years now, the so-called Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe, and that's been steadily giving data that's been improving. But recently, the Planck satellite has been launched and has been taking data, and we'll be getting first results from that uh, fairly soon, probably within a year. And both of those are looking for further predictions that inflation has made that should be found in this spectrum, some of which will be very convincing that inflation was actually the cause of these fluctuations. Hmm. Now, you say the, 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 uh, the strong points for the inflation model include the fact that it describes an evolution that's quite plausible given the universe we see today. It predicts patterns in the cosmic background radiation. And it leads to these conclusions that not many physicists really had a deep desire <laughs> to be led to, which is that there may be these bubbles or these other kinds of um, inflationary processes still going on, creating either other regions of our universe that are very different from our own or, or new universes, you know, all part of what's called the multiverse. Are those two different things or are those two ways of saying the same thing? Different regions, they, different universes. They can be different things. There, there are, I would say, a number of different ways that people have been bandying about the term multiverse or multiple universes. One that you can imagine is where there are genuinely parallel universes. There's ours universe and then there's some other one often, you know, some other dimension or something that really doesn't interact with ours in any way. And those are sort of metaphysics. If, we, if it can't affect us and we mm -hmm. can't affect it, mm -hmm. who cares? Mm-hmm. Um, there are more interesting versions of that multiverse that have to do with quantum mechanics and parallel worlds and, and so on that would be a whole nother conversation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In inflation, we can think of two types of other universes. One are these different bubbles. So here, this eternal inflation process is going on. It creates a bubble here, a bubble there. They might have different properties and they're much bigger than residents of those universes see. They, they essentially feel that their universe is all that exists because that's all that they can see, but that's just because of the limited amount that they can see, and really there's other stuff. So whether you want to call them different universes or not is a matter of semantics, mm -hmm. but they're all connected, and they're all, they all have one process that gives rise to them. Mm -hmm. and, and they're connected in the sense that they're all part of one big space-time. Another sort of parallel or, or multiple universes that has to do with inflation is the idea that you could create a so-called baby universe. And this is a, a, a slightly trickier thing. Um, one thing that Alan Guth, after inventing inflation, realized was that the amount of stuff that you need, this inflaton that you actually need in order to grow a universe out of it, is about 10 kilograms. Okay, 10 kilograms doesn't seem like a whole lot of stuff. <laughs> and you could imagine you know, going into your laboratory in the basement and coming up with 10 kilograms of this stuff and creating universe. 
So he worked on a project uh, with, with Ed Farhi about could you create a universe in the laboratory or in the basement, but apparently that, that title wouldn't pass through the journals. <laughs> um, so what they studied was can we just build a little bit of inflation, which will then grow into a universe. If, if we knew how to create this hypothetical field, this inflaton. That's right. We could generate it somehow and we might give birth to a new universe right so that's the idea now okay you you immediately might worry about some implications of this right mm -hmm. if, if we create a little universe that's expanding at a tremendous speed well isn't that bad news because it's going to expand into us and instantly kill us right this is this would be a catastrophe it would annihilate the universe around <clears throat> it is that how it works well you might worry but fortunately that's not actually what happens uh -huh. what happens is that the and this is going to sound really science fictiony, but just bear with me. <laughs> if this little baby universe can inflate, what you can show is that it has to be essentially on the other side of a wormhole. This little conduit that connects from our space time into some other one, it's just out there somewhere, that then is connected to this inflating universe which grows. So if you can make this happen, then you have our universe, this little wormhole that connects us to this inflating thing that can grow as much as it likes and it doesn't impact ours at all. So it really is a, a sort of separate butted off universe. And you can even have the wormhole close off and then the thing is totally separate from us and we never see it again. Well, I've, I've heard that wormholes, which are a staple of science fiction, um, they are these little tunnels between two very different regions of space-time or different domains of space-time, right? That's that right. they are really fragile. They tend to close really fast and right. the idea of using them to cross over to go back in time to do other fancy things is That's pretty right. ridiculous this would not be the sort of wormhole you could actually go through okay the what's even more troubling about it though is that this sort of wormhole is it's not clear how to make one either so if you got into your lab you know and someone says okay make a wormhole and on the other side of it make this inflating universe all right so first you think okay how do i make a wormhole but but even if you could figure out how to make a wormhole if you can't go through it then how do you reach in and make the inflating universe on the other side? So this is the problem that they encountered, that there, there wasn't a way to actually form this wormhole in the universe on the other side. But, but there, there is a caveat, which is if something seems impossible, according to regular classical physics, according to quantum physics, it may not be, because things that seem classically impossible, quantum mechanically sometimes aren't. So they studied, could some freak quantum mechanical process just by chance make this happen so you would create lots of essentially create lots and lots of black holes but maybe just one time by chance there'd be this wormhole that would lead to this other universe you wouldn't really know about it but it would be out there uh, you know you do your part in the reproductive process but you would never see the offspring it would, it would be estranged and you'd never see it again um, whether this quantum mechanical process makes sense I think really that even after 20 years, the jury is still out. Mm. It's a hard problem to understand. Mm. And we should reassure people who are now worried about the consequences of scientists making new universes in their basements that no one knows what an inflaton field really is and no one knows how to produce one. So this is all just, this is all just a thought experiment, yes? <clears throat> That's right. It, I, I would love it if we knew enough about inflaton fields and, and their ilk to even contemplate making something or manipulating <laughs> them in the basement. Um, but the fact is that we're many, many orders of magnitude, you know, huge amounts of energy away from actually being able to even probe in the laboratory the physics involved in this. And that that's why cosmology is so important, because even our most powerful collider, the Large Hadron Collider, is just nowhere near the sorts of energies that we'd need to talk about inflation in the lab. Mm. And yet, we can get information about what might have happened during inflation from observational cosmology. Mm -hmm. And that's um, a role that cosmology has really served. For the past 30 years, particle physics has been a bit in a bit of a funk because it was too successful. They, they were able to explain essentially all of the particles that make up normal matter and that we can test with, with a model that just didn't have anything that violated it. The only violations had been coming from cosmology, dark matter, dark energy, inflation, the origin of uh, protons and, and baryonic stuff. Um, all of these are things that the standard model of particle physics can't explain, and yet from cosmology and astrophysics, we know 
it doesn't accommodate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So on the one hand, the good or bad news, depending on how you look at it, is that we're nowhere close at all to doing anything with these fields in the lab. But that doesn't mean they're they're outside of, of our ability to investigate. It's right. just a different set of tools we have. Right. You know, at, at this point, I think it'd be really useful if we could just recap and clarify some of the many things we talked about. Sure. And I, and I want to start um, way back when, 13.7 billion years ago, when at least this part of our universe, the visible universe, the part we reside in, may have been inflating, right, before okay. it slowed down and started expanding at a slower rate. I was using the term earlier, the early universe. Now, I want to make it clear that even that is not an accurate use of the word early because we have no idea how long the universe had existed before that, right? Exactly. It's a slightly embarrassing fact that we have this great result that we have these observations of the universe as it was 13.7 billion years ago. And there's a sense in which the universe began 13.7 billion years ago, which has been reported in the press and so on. But if you accept this inflation story, as many cosmologists do, then it's 13.7 plus a number that's somewhere between 10 to the minus 20 seconds and infinity. <laughs> so there's a pretty large range of possibilities there um, that reflects just our, our, the openness of this question and, and our, our real struggle with understanding what happened in, the, in the, a large scale and early universe. And I, and I want to reemphasize that most of what we've been talking about uh, when we say 13.7 billion years, when we say that the size of the universe now is 40 billion, more or less, light years across. We're talking about the visible universe, that part we can see. And beyond that, it could be who knows how big. It could be who knows how old. It could be expanding at who knows how fast a rate. That's right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I think that, that really gets lost in a lot of talk about the Big Bang and about the universe, that we're really only talking about our neighborhood. Yes, and it, it's it's temptation that we've been victim of time and time again to make the whole universe the tidy little picture that we have in our mind, that it's the earth with some stars on glass spheres that are circulating around it, or that it's our solar system, or that it's even our galaxy with maybe a few other galaxies. And so even though we've been through this process many times before, we nonetheless resist the idea that there's something much bigger and much more complicated or much harder to understand that goes beyond the simple picture that we have in our mind. So the simple picture that we have now that we have won through some a lot of hard work and hard observation is of the Big Bang universe. And, and it's vast and it's complicated and has hundreds of billions of galaxies. But we have to keep in mind that that, again, may just be one tiny little part of the whole. So this is like the Copernican revolution when we humans began to realize that we weren't the center of the solar system, but much, much, much bigger. (laughs) Our universe may not even be the universe. (laughs) That's right. That's right. (laughs) Um, But at any rate, let's talk about our neighborhood, our patch of the universe. And we can say at this point, based on current models, that sometime around 13.7 billion years ago, it was inflating really fast. It blew up to the size of a grapefruit, and then it slowed down. And it continued to expand because now we have a much bigger universe, much bigger than a grapefruit, 40 billion light years across. Um, What caused it to expand from grapefruit to 40 billion light years, since inflation had sort of run out of steam? Right. So what, what was no longer happening was that things weren't being pushed apart anymore. But nonetheless, if you push things apart for a while, so if you imagine throwing a ball, you push it away from you, But if you stop pushing, it doesn't mean the ball suddenly stops moving away from you. It keeps going. So in that sense, inflation gave the universe this big expansionary impetus. You Mm -hmm. know, it 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 gave it a lot of of momentum in the in the sense of expansion. And after that, it just sort of kept sailing apart. Okay, we're coasting. We're coasting. We're coasting. The the only real force that's affecting that is gravity. And for for a long time, gravity slowed down that expansion. Mm -hmm. So it kept going quickly, but at an ever slower rate because of the matter and radiation making up the universe. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, what happened uh, several billion years ago was that that deceleration of the universe gave way to something different, which was an acceleration of the universe 
caused once again by something like vacuum energy. And this is the whole question of dark energy that we haven't talked a lot about today. In fact, we haven't talked about it, but dark energy is this relatively new idea, um, you know, about 10 years old or so, uh, that explains observations that the universe is in fact expanding at a faster and faster rate. Now, we've also said that, uh, and again, by way of just sort of recapping here, we've also said that uh, though inflation came to a halt uh, and we started coasting in our visible part of the universe, in other parts of the universe, beyond our visible horizon, uh, inflation may never have stopped. So there might be parts of the universe that are expanding super fast right now. There might be parts that are expanding at different rates, different patches where the inflaton field is doing different things, right? That's right. And in some sense, it may be that the real structure of the universe is inflation, that, that non-inflation is almost a, a sort of brief and local interlude that we're experiencing now, but that we had inflation in our past. Inflation may be going on elsewhere right now in some sense, and that we're now entering another phase of inflation, but at a much lower energy where we call inflation dark energy. Oh, okay, call... okay. So dark energy could be uh, sort of low energy inflaton. In, se in a sense, it is. It's exactly the same physics. It's the same ah. sort of exponential expansion. Whether the the field causing or the, the forces causing that inflation are exactly the same or, or how they're linked to the inflationary one I think we don't know, but the physics is the same, and it and it also gives us more confidence in the idea that there could be some sort of vacuum energy and exponential expansion in the very early universe because we're seeing it happening now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in addition to the the picture I just gave of a universe, one much larger than our visible part of the universe, having various regions that are inflating at different rates and have different kinds of dynamics. There may even be multiple universes. Maybe inflation has caused some universes simply to break off, yes, and form their own entire sealed <laughs> world. Right. So there may be a, a diversity in this connected region that's inflating at different rates and so on. But there, there could be little wormholes that are connecting us to whole other big regions that are really quite separate from ours, but are going on, I don't know, somewhere else. Collectively coming together to make something you guys call the multiverse. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> now, one other question we raised earlier, and I don't think we quite um, answered it, is whether the universe is infinite or finite. Mm -hmm. Nobody really knows at this point, right? Nobody knows, and, and probably no one ever will know. But what I've been surprised by is the degree to which we might get evidence for whether the universe is finite or infinite. Um, well, I suppose we could... We could measure that the universe is finite. We, we, the universe could have been, you know, 50 miles across and we could just walk <laughs> around it. But So it wasn't that way, but in principle. The infinite universe is trickier because we're never going to be able to actually see an infinite distance or mm -hmm. go there and, you know, in our infinite rocket ship and so on. Right. But one can ask, so suppose inflation happened and suppose eternal inflation happens and suppose we could get some sort of evidence that something like eternal inflation were happening so so that we became really strong believers in eternal inflation. Then I would say that we would believe that the universe is infinite. Not just you, a bunch of finite universes? Not, not just – so you might imagine that um, if the universe started out finite and just grew, even if it grows forever, it's always going to be finite, mm -hmm. just really big. Yeah. But here's the very interesting and tricky thing about general relativity – is the relativity part. So what does that relativity mean? It means that each observer can sort of carry around with them their own definition of, among other things, how we split space-time into space and time. So for you, you might say, you know what you know now is where, you, where you're sitting, but if you try to say what is now far away, you have to make a, a sort of assumption about it. And there's a, a sort of natural set of things out in the universe that you might say are happening now. But I can also assume what things are happening now for me. And mine won't necessarily match up with yours. And the the, the effects can get really big. So, you, so for example, suppose we're talking about the center of our galaxy and there's a black hole there and, and maybe there's a, a planet about to get destroyed in that black hole. For you, you might say, well, that planet was gobbled up a half an hour ago. Mm-hmm. 
But for me, suppose I'm just walking past you. Okay, so I have a, just even a small speed relative to you. My natural definition of now might say that the planet is going to be destroyed in another half hour. So over large distances, even regular walking speed will add up to hours in different, different definitions of what's happening now. <laughs> you are saying that when we're referring to something at vast distances from ourselves, even slight differences in your frame of reference from mine add up to huge differences in the projected time of those events far away. That's right. And, <laughs> and there simply isn't any fact. There, there isn't any answer to the question, has yeah. the planet been gobbled up yeah. yet? Yeah. There is no answer to that. Right. So when you go to even bigger distances, the question gets even thornier. So if you go to cosmological scales, you can ask questions like, is the universe finite or infinite? What does that mean? It, it's a, it means, is the universe now, that's kind of a big space, is that finite or infinite in size? But now according to who? And general relativity is even more liberal in, in the sorts of things that you can call now than special relativity is, the one that we were discussing. You can basically draw all kinds of different things in general relativity and say that that's now. So the question, as it turns out, of whether the universe is infinite or finite doesn't have an answer in eternal inflation unless you also say what is now. Mm -hmm. okay. certain, certain definitions of what is now are more natural than others. So you might choose a definition, say, that says, let me count as now the region of space-time where the universe is more or less like it is here, the same density, say, or more or less the same properties. Okay, So that's a definition of of what kind of now you want to choose. With that definition, in eternal inflation, the universe is almost always infinite, even if it started out as a finite space. Mm. So what you've done is take this finite thing, expand it into an infinite space-time, and you've sort of traded off some of the infinite time for infinite space so that when you now define in a natural way what is, what is the universe like now, the one that we inhabit, it generally will be spatially infinite. Mm. Um, so much of what we've talked about today um, really does grow pretty directly out of um, Einstein's amazing insight, general relativity. That's right. Um, and I kind of, uh, you know, after talking to people like yourself who, who know general relativity, I feel like the world divides into those lucky ones who really understand it and the rest of us. When did you come to grips with general relativity? I'm still waiting. Are you? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's an amazingly subtle theory. I mean, it, it's elegant and beautiful. Um, and as Einstein said, you know, it, when, when confronted with the possibility that the observations wouldn't turn out the way that he predicted, he said, well, um, you know, the theory has to be right. So either the observations are wrong or, or uh, et cetera. So he was, the, the theory was, it's, it's a beautiful and self-contained and elegant theory, but it's not easy to understand and it's not easy to grasp all the implications of. So um, I'm still coming to grips with what general relativity really means and also coming to grips with it in, a, in an intuitive way. It's one thing to think of this mathematical theory and to work out mathematical solutions. But when I try to think, you know, the universe really is infinite because I can't say what's happening now out there. I mean, it's really quite mind-blowing. We have a very strong sense that things either have happened or are going to happen or are happening now. And the idea that there is no such thing, you know, that, that there is no meaning to that, is pretty hard to swallow, um, even though I work with that on a day-to-day -day basis in, in working out these theories. Well, I was about to say I'm going to let you go now, but I guess that's not even an accurate statement. <laughs> <laughs> it is for us, but somebody else out there, who knows when we're leaving. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And my head still aches. <laughs> <laughs> I warned you. Count on my nose a hundred times I'd rather not again 
20 is easy and a hundred no sweat But there's one number I just can't get Infinity Just to